All right, good morning, everyone. Here we are at session four, uh, already at the conclusion of our retreat. Uh, these retreats really do fly by too fast, huh? Uh, it's been a full weekend, and I know a lot of good conversations about uh, heaven and hell, uh, scripture, and your spiritual lives have taken place. Uh, I just want to again say thank you for allowing me and uh, my family to pop in just for a few days and uh, say hello and to get a glimpse into all that God is doing in this church. Uh, it, it's just been a blessing to see it from afar and now a real special blessing to uh, just for a few days get a front row seat into uh, the tangible work of God in your lives individually as well as uh, as a church. Uh, you guys are blessed in so many different ways. You have a great pastoral staff and leadership team. Uh, you guys have a strong community and, and fellowship and uh, just been really cool to see the friendships that uh, have uh, already been established and new ones take place and these friendships being strengthened over the weekend. And uh, man, you guys asked really good questions about heaven and hell. Uh, some of them kind of tough. I'll have to get back to you on some of them. Uh, and just shows that your thinking shows that you, you care, shows that your faith is growing in these spiritual and eternal realities. And it's just been uh, super cool to see. So thanks for letting me be a part of it. Well, uh, I just ran into... Um, someone who was telling me, yeah, like yesterday was pretty heavy, man. And I agree, it was very heavy. And uh, we're going we're gonna to ascend back into heaven this morning. We're going to end on a high note. We're going to talk about uh, what the Bible has to say about heaven once again. And to begin, I want to tell you about Camp Esperanza. Translated Camp Hope. Imagine the scene, 200 people living out of tents, weeping, despairing, crying on each other's shoulders. Camp Esperanza seems like anything but Camp Hope. Now, these 200 people had gathered in this camp back in August of 2010, right outside the entrance of a collapsed mine. They were the family members of the 33 Chilean miners trapped 2,300 feet below the Earth's surface. While these 33 miners were underground doing their work, a giant chunk of a mountain fell down right on the entrance of the mine, caving it in. And the, the impact was so great that it knocked several miners off their feet. Well, when they, they thought an earthquake was happening, they ran into this steel-enforced safety room, which had supplies that was only designed to last for two days. 18 cans of tuna, one can of salmon, a can of peaches, a can of peas, 24 liters of condensed milk, and 93 packages of cookies. For water, the men drank the dirty and oily water that was meant to keep the engines of their machinery cool. They rationed their food equally. Each day at noon, every man was given a spoonful of salmon or tuna and two cookies, and that was to last them until noon the next day. 
Now, this went on day after day until nearly all the food had run out. At one point, after they had finished all the peaches, they found a single slice of a peach, and they divided it meticulously into 33 slices about the size of a fingernail so that they could all have just a tiny bit of nourishment. Now, this went on for 17 days, 17 days of not knowing if they would ever be rescued with each passing day, with each passing hour, their hope grew dimmer. Some men started to hallucinate. Some of the men started to fight with each other and others had the exact opposite reaction. They went into a secluded corner of the mind to be by themselves with their thoughts. But then on day 17, finally, hope came. Hope came in the form of the sound of a drill. At first, some of the men thought they were hallucinating, but more of them heard it. And so they ran over to a place where they heard the sound of the drill, and they started banging on the rock with their wrenches to identify where they were at. And then a drill bore a hole through the wall about the size of a grapefruit. And when the men peered out this hole, they saw something that they hadn't seen for a very long time. Sunlight. And now with this grapefruit-sized hole bore through the wall, they began to, to laugh and celebrate. They, they passed around that dirty, oily water like it was champagne. Uh, they, they, they cried together, knowing that they would soon be rescued. Uh, it would be another 52 days before the miners could actually be extracted, but through the small hole, the rescuers were able to pass down clean water, food, and a phone line. And in the end, all 33 made it out alive. I remember seeing it on the news and seeing images of these 33 miners wearing these uh, special sunglasses because their eyes needed to adjust to being back out in the sun. And they're just hugging their family members. All the people at Camp Esperanza were celebrating. They, they, they got their family members back that they thought were dead, that they thought they would never see again. We'll rewind to day 17. These 33 miners sitting in darkness. And then compare that to day 18. These guys still sitting in darkness, but now with this hole bore through the wall. Not much has changed. But everything's changed. What's changed? Hope. Hope. Hope changed everything. Today, as we look at Revelation 22, we're going to get a glimpse into our future in heaven. And if we hope in this, there is great power. Because hope changes everything. Going back to the illustration of the miners, the, the fact that they had this hope changed how they thought. It changed how they felt. It changed how they interacted with each other. Even though they were still in the mine. This illustrates one of the key takeaways from today's sermon. And that is that future prospects dramatically change how you view present realities. Future prospects dramatically change how you view present 
realities. As we leave here today, I pray that as we look at one more passage about heaven, that your hope, your, your desire, your excitement, your anticipation for heaven will grow and be strengthened. But on top of that, I hope and pray that understanding your hope of heaven will also change everything. That it'll change how you think, how you feel, how you interact with each other. That it'll change your priorities. That it'll change your financial decisions. That it'll change what you put on your calendar and what you don't put on your calendar. Uh, I pray that your hope will increase your joy, increase your contentment, increase your peace, that, that it'll affect how you pray, how you praise, how you read the Bible, how you love, how you serve, how you evangelize, because this hope has power. It has power to change how you live. So let's look at Revelation chapter 22. We're in the very last chapter of the Bible. We're at the very end of the story, the very end of redemptive history. And we're going to cover the first five verses in detail and then skip around a little bit for the rest of the chapter. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Now this morning we're going to see four things. We're going to see what is new, what is central, what is certain, and what is required. Uh, let's first start with what is new. What is new? We've talked about the new earth, and here on the new earth, we see two new things in verses 1 to 2. A river of life and a tree of life, both symbols of eternal life. First, we see that there is a river that flows through the middle of the street in the New Jerusalem, which, as we've said, is the capital city of heaven. Verse 1 says this river's water is bright as crystal. It's sparkling and shining as it cascades through the city. This river flowing uh, is coming from a source, and that source is the throne of God and of the Lamb. You see, it, it flows from the throne of God because he is the source of all life, the creator of all life, including eternal life. And this river also flows from the throne of the Lamb because it is the Lamb who was slain to purchase eternal life. We have this picture of water 
the most basic necessity of all life. And this water that we read about here, the, the river of life, this water will sustain us eternally. Uh, this water will sustain us and satisfy us eternally. Makes us think of the woman at the well who was just having a normal day until she met Jesus and he offered her living water. Water that she chose to drink would satisfy her completely and eternally and she would never thirst again. Well, as we continue to look around heaven, we not only see a river of life, but we also see a tree of life. And this tree is like no other that you've seen. Uh, we've seen apple trees with apples on them. We've seen orange trees with oranges on them. But you ain't never seen a tree with 12 different kinds of fruit on it. And in this phrase that you might have missed if you're reading fast, middle of verse 2 there, yielding its fruit each month. This tree bears its fruit each month. Every single month you find fruit on it. This is new. This tree bears fruit each and every month. There's no seasons of barrenness, uh, no seasons of no fruit. This, this tree always has fruit on it. It's always in season. Every single month you're able to find fruit on it. And no tree on this earth does that. Verse 2 says the leaves of the tree are beneficial too. They're used for healing. Now you might think, okay, if the, if the leaves of this tree are used for healing, that must mean that there's something to be healed from. Therefore, there, there must be some kind of disease, some kind of sickness, some kind of injury in heaven if we need the leaves to heal us. But that's not the case. Uh, for reference, we saw back in chapter 21, verse 4, that God wipes away the tears in our eyes. And this doesn't imply that there's crying in heaven. It talks about the, the pain and suffering that caused tears on earth are no more. Now that's what's symbolized by God wiping away our tears. And so in the same way, the, the leaves that are used for healing heal us from the pains and sufferings and injuries and ailments that we experience on earth. And ultimately, this is simply a symbol, a very powerful symbol, the end of sickness, pain, and death. So whatever you're going through or whatever you will go through in this life, you know, whether it's just a, a small injury like jamming your finger, trying to grab a board, if it's you know, getting sick, a little flu, or if it's a more serious illness that you have, maybe even a chronic illness that you have that you anticipate having for the rest of your life. In heaven, that all goes away. There is full complete and forever healing and so you will not suffer any more so what's new a river of life and a tree of life both symbolizing eternal life we will live forever and as we live forever we will experience the highest quality of life free of sickness, free of pain, free of suffering. Uh, sometimes to give Linda a break, I'll take 
uh, our three boys off on our own. And, uh, you know, we'll go to the zoo, go to the park. Uh, we'll hit up Lego Discovery Center. So, no, I don't drive them down to San Diego for Lego Land, the real thing. Uh, for you parents, you guys discover Lego Discovery Center. It's like a poor man's Lego Land up in uh, the Great Mall in Milpitas. It's got, like, one ride. It's great. And uh, my kids really love this place. And, you know, whenever they're here at a birthday party or something, if they're swimming in the summer and they're totally engrossed in this activity, you know, they really love it, having a great time. They always dread the moment. And they know it's coming. When I walk up to them and say, all right, boys, it's time to go. And then the dance begins. Five more minutes. Five more minutes, just five more minutes. No, no, we, we got to go. We got to go. Mom's had a long enough break. It's time to, time to interrupt her life again. <laughs> five more minutes, five more minutes. And, you know, it's so cute. I'm like, all right, all right. It's just so like, all right, five more minutes, five more minutes. And then they play for five more minutes. And then, you know, then, then the dance resumes. Like, all right, boys, we got to go. Well, five more minutes. And, you know, eventually we, we just got to get out of there. Well, that's just a, a, a small illustration of what it's going to be like when we're in heaven. It is going to be so amazing, so much fun. Uh, We're going to be full of so much wonder and amazement at this perfect place in heaven, experiencing it with sinless bodies that we just never want to leave. God, can can I just stay a little longer? Can I stay a little longer? And the answer is always going to come back, yes, of course. This is your home. This is eternity. You can stay forever. And we're always going to be full of this, this feeling of never wanting to leave. And praise God, we never have to. I mean, to, to live in a perfect world with no curse. To live sinless. uh, To have relationships and friendships not marred by awkwardness and difficulty and conflict. To to have perfect health. Oh, that's the place I want to be forever. And we get to be there forever. This is eternal life. Secondly, let's look at what is central. We saw what is new. Let's look at what is central. Verses 3 to 5. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse of Genesis chapter 3, the curse on mankind, the curse on the earth, is now reversed. Why? How? How did this happen? Finish that sentence in verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but... The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The curse is gone because God is here. The curse is gone because the Lamb is here, and he has crushed the serpent's head. God and the Lamb, who was slain for the sins of the world, will be central in heaven Their thrones will be central in heaven and all of us will gather around and we will sing, we will praise, we will serve. Verse 4, we will see his face. And that's huge because nobody got to see God's face. 
Moses asked for it, but he got shoved into the cleft of a rock, and God passed by, and, and Moses was only able to see his afterglow. In Isaiah's vision, the angels use two of their six wings to cover their faces because they dare not look directly at the glory of God. But here, we see amazingly redeemed sinners. Us, those that have have sinned so much and failed God so many times in this life, we get to see his face. And this is the the apex of our fellowship with God. To, To actually see him face to face. Oh, this God that we love so much in this life, yet so imperfectly. This God that we sought to know and to learn about and to commune with in this life so much, but, but so imperfectly. This God that we prayed to in this life, yet so infrequently. This God we have. We see him face to face, and we, we failed so many times here in our prayers and in our, our pursuit of God because we could not see him. We could only see him with the eyes of faith. But that changes in heaven. We see him with our physical eyes. We see his face. And that dramatically changes our relationship with him. We have him like never before. We have him closer, more intimately, more personally than ever before. Verse 4 continues, his name will be on their foreheads. Uh, This shows permanent possession. There's no doubt that we belong to God forever. In Revelation chapter 13, if you read there, you see that those sinners take the mark of the beast on their forehead, showing that they belong to him, and their destiny is the same as his, the lake of fire. But here we see the opposite. We see that saints will take on the name of God on their forehead, showing that we belong with him, and our destiny is the same as his, and that is to live in heaven forever. Verse 5, night will be no more. There's no more night, not necessarily because the sun is shining bright all the time. Verse 5 says you don't even need the sun or a lamp, but God will be the light. The brilliant, radiant, shining glory of the Lord fills the earth. Bringing light to every corner of it. Verse 5 finishes by saying we will reign with God forever and ever. That's good news. And that's the culmination of the good news of the gospel. You see, the gospel tells us that we were rebellious, sinful people, uh, that we had cr- committed cosmic treason against the king and the creator, the one who, who, who made us. But God made a way. For us to be reconciled to him. The the king has offered pardon to the rebels. But God doesn't just want exonerated criminals. Uh, We read in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 that God wanted a family. And so on top of justification, we have the doctrine of adoption. Adoption. Where God is father 
invites us into his family, adopts us as his own children, brings us in, reconciles us, brings us home to him. But here we have yet another step, uh, another manifestation of the good news of the gospel, and that is that God wasn't even content with family. He wasn't content with just sons and daughters. He wanted us to rule with him. He wanted us to be something of kings and queens that would help him rule the earth that he created, restoring the original design that he had for Adam and Eve. So we see in verses 3 to 5 that God is the central character of heaven. He is what makes heaven heaven. We're with him. He is ours. We have his name on our forehead. We're right there with him, and we embark on this journey of perfectly worshiping him, perfectly serving him, perfectly fellowshipping with him, and what an adventure that is going to be. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of seven books, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, as an allegory of the Christian life. And in the final book, The Last Battle, he speaks of heaven in this story. And toward the end of the very last book, he says this. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this, the end of all the stories, And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Can't wait. Can't wait. Future prospects dramatically change how we view present realities. What you think about heaven and your hope in heaven should change how you view what's going on today and should change what you do today. Uh, What you look forward to will change how you feel currently. You feel very different in the morning when you know that it's the first day of your vacation and you're about to go on a trip versus you wake up in the morning and you know you got to go to the dentist You feel very different in the morning when you wake up and it is your wedding day versus you wake up in the morning and you know you got to go to the DMV. Guys, we woke up this morning knowing that we're going to heaven. And that should do something to us. That should change how we feel and should change how we view today. Well, we've seen what is new and what is central Uh, Rather, who is central? And now let's look at what is certain. What is certain is that Jesus is coming back. Verses 6 to 13. 
three times Jesus makes this promise. Take a look at verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. And then verse 20, the last words of Jesus in the Bible, surely I am coming soon. Certainty is written all over this text. Look at verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. And at the end of the verse, this must soon take place. Verse 10, the angel tells John not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Don't seal up the book. Don't close the book. Lay it open. Let everyone see. Because the time is near. Because he's coming soon. Now, now what does this mean in verse 10, that the time is near? I mean, come on. Come on. It's been 2,000 years. Uh, what, What do we mean by soon? Well, the best word that we can use is the word imminent. Imminent. Uh, It means that it can happen at any time. Uh, That Jesus is ready to return. That he stands on on the doorstep of time and his hand is on the doorknob. And he can turn that knob and fling open that door at any time. And no one knows the time that this is going to happen. So it doesn't mean that Jesus is going to come back next week, but he might. It doesn't mean that we're going to be in heaven tomorrow, but it means that we might be. Do you believe that? That he's coming back for you? This is the certainty of Christ's return. Are you ready? Are you ready for that? Are you ready for his return? Because if not... This passage also tells you how you can get ready. It tells you what is required to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. We've seen what is new, a river of life and a tree of life. What is central, God and the lamb. What is certain, Jesus is coming back. Let's look now at what is required. Verses 14 to 21. What is required to enter heaven? Verse 14 Wash your robes. Wash your robes. Let's read verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. The only other time washing of robes is mentioned in Revelation is chapter 7, verse 14, which says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb all who wish to have access to the tree of life have to wash their robes in the blood of the lamb only the blood of christ can make us clean to need washing implies that your robes are dirty that there there must be a confession that you you are filthy that you have sinned against a holy God, that you have stained yourself walking through this world with your own lusts and pride and corruption. And to confess that you need washing, that the only way your robes are going to be white as snow is through the death of Jesus Christ. He died as our substitute, taking on all of the punishment for our sins And that's how our robes can be washed clean. Another way of saying what is required in verse 17, 
come and drink. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What's required? All you have to do is be thirsty. The sparkling river of life in heaven is yours. If only you come to its shores and drink. This is water without price. It is free. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. Another way of saying what is required? Nothing. Nothing. Just be thirsty and come and drink the free water without price. This is an open invitation, a broad, sweeping offer. Let the one who is thirsty come. Come one, come all. He is here. He is available. Come to him, and this heaven is yours. Uh, don't wait. First Thessalonians says Jesus is going to come back unexpectedly like a thief in the night. And you don't know what night the thief is going to come. And that's why you prepare beforehand. That's why you get your ring doorbell as soon as you can. And you, you put that security camera up as soon as you can. Because you don't know when the thief is going to come. The only way that you can prepare is to prepare beforehand. To prepare now. And so we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. And the only thing that we can do is prepare and prepare now. Don't delay. If you haven't come to the waters and drink, do it today. Because next year, next week, tomorrow, might be too late. Waiting for heaven in scripture is compared to one of the most highly anticipated and joyful times in a person's life. It's compared to waiting for the birth of a child. Matthew 24 says the sufferings of this world are like birth pangs that lead to the coming of Christ. Romans 8.24 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This happened 10 years ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, Linda calls me on the phone and says, Guess what? And something in her voice told me, it's go time. Uh, she tells me that she's pregnant, and it's just such a weird feeling knowing that you're going to be a, a parent for the first time. You feel uh, so excited and yet so clueless at the same time. What am I doing? I am but a lad. What am I doing here? And yet I'm going to be a father. And it gets really crazy during that last month because that's the real go time. It can happen at any moment, and so you got to get all the stuff prepared. You got to get the diapers. You got to get the high chair, the stroller, the crib, the miniature basketball hoop, all the essentials. And you got to pack the, the hospital bag, which has, you know, change of clothes for me, change of clothes for Linda, some snacks, a phone charger, and put that bag right by the door because it can happen at any time. It could happen today or not. But the thing is, the day of that baby's birth is always getting closer, never further away. 
And in the same way, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And it might not be tomorrow, might not be the day after that, but as time marches on, we always get closer to that day and never further. And Christian, I hope that this is an encouragement to you today that the day when we cross over to heaven never gets further away, it only gets closer because this life is not all it's cracked up to be, right? I mean, there is just so much let down and so much disappointment and so much pain and suffering in, in our lives personally and in the world and in our nation going on around us. And scripture is very frank with this, right? Scripture doesn't hide the fact that there is pain and suffering in this world. It speaks about it very frankly. But at the same time, these verses and others speak about how this pain is designed to make you look forward to when that pain goes away. It's designed to make you long or groan, as Romans 8 says, for this to all be over. You see, there are some pains in this life that we just can't seem to shake. There are some pains in this life that we're going to carry for a very long time, for years. And some you will carry all the way to the day that you die. But maybe... It's supposed to be that way. Maybe there's supposed to be disappointment in this life. Maybe there's supposed to be frustrations in this life. Maybe there's supposed to be pains that you're going to carry for a very long time, maybe to the, the very end of your life. Maybe there's supposed to be parts of your job that you don't like. Maybe there's supposed to be relationships that are difficult and are full of conflict. Maybe there's supposed to be financial hardship. Maybe there's supposed to be things that frustrate you on a daily basis because these pains and, and this suffering is designed by God to, to take our eyes off of this broken world and onto the perfect world to come. This pain is designed to pry our fingers off of this world and make us reach forward to the world that is to come. There is pain in this life. But it's meant to make us groan. It's meant to make us yearn for the world to come. It's meant to remind us that it's not supposed to be this way. This is not God's design here. This is the effects of sin and death. But there is restoration coming. There is redemption coming. We're meant to be with God in holiness and perfection. And, and our hearts long for that day. In a hospital, there is pain on every floor. But it makes all the difference if you hear groans of pain from the oncology floor versus labor and delivery. Both pain is real. Both pain is intense. But the pain that you hear coming from the oncology floor can lead to death. Whereas the pain and groaning that you hear from labor and delivery leads to life. And so, yeah, there's, there's great pain in this world. Long-term pain, intense pain. 
But when we cross over and step foot on the golden streets of heaven, when we see God face to face and he wipes that last tear from our eyes, makes all the pain worth it. Because that's the moment that's like the new mom that gets that baby placed in her arms for the first time. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. I remember hearing this simple story when I was a teenager. It's a very simple story, but I hope this simple truth is um, something that will stick with us as we leave. There was a young woman who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and had been given months to live. So as she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and had him come over to her house to discuss certain aspects of her final wishes. She told him which songs she wanted sung at the service, what scriptures she wanted read, and what outfit she wanted to be buried in. Toward the end of the meeting, she says, there's just one more thing. What's that? replied the pastor. This is very important, the young woman continued. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor stood looking at the young woman, not knowing quite what to say. I'm puzzled, said the pastor. The young woman explained, I've been at your church for many years, and in all my years of attending Bible studies, potlucks, socials, and dinners, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over to me and say, keep your fork, the best is yet to come. And I knew they were right Velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie was on its way. So as I held that fork, I always knew the best was yet to come. So I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand. And I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? Then I want you to tell them the best is yet to come. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we can rejoice uh, as a church that... You have designed our lives through the redemption of your son where the best is yet to come, where there is joy and there is beauty on this earth. And yet it's but a glimpse, just a sample of the joy, the peace, the comfort that awaits us in heaven. Uh, God, we are so thankful that uh, you have given us your son freely, that you have given us hope when we had none, when you gave us eternal life, when we deserved eternal perishing. Thank you for Jesus who died as our substitute, who died in our place so that we can read these passages about heaven and know they apply to us. And I pray that we would never lose our sense of wonder that this is the gospel. Because we know that that wonder and that amazement is going to translate into how we live. So God, give us this eternal perspective. Help us to live this life in light of the one to come. And this life is so short. God, help us to make it count. Help us to live for you and do things that will echo 10,000 years from today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.